When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Tell her you're going to be a podcast star. (laughs) (laughs) She'll respect you more, I promise. (laughs) Hello and welcome to the Voice of Reason podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's guest is Julian Ace Akiard, who is an independent uh, operator and proprietor of an independent business out in New Hampshire, uh, which is the live free or die state. And as you might imagine, he is somewhat of libertarian leanings. He's a staunch conservative in the small c, non-political sense, more the constitutionalist or an originalist. And he's also a, a black individual who is involved in black conservative thought. And I wanted to have him on my channel to understand better what it is to be a black conservative, what it is to be a conservative. Furthermore, and how the black experience, the black American experience, uh, fits into that, and what the uh, political landscape is, specifically towards libertarian-leaning or conservative-leaning black individuals, which is pretty fascinating. There's a lot of stuff going on there that I didn't know about, and maybe you don't know that much about either. So hopefully this is a launching-off point for myself and others in my position to learn more about this movement and how the political landscape might probably will be shifting in coming elections. So without further ado, here is Julian, aka the blue collar intellectual. We live in crazy times. Mm-hmm. I, I swear this year is, uh, if I didn't think it could get any crazier, like we were discussing last time with the black conservative movement. Yeah. Honestly, I thought it was done. I thought it was done and over with. I thought we were starting. I mean, for most of us, we had pretty much looked at this as a done deal. And we were like, all right. So uh, this election, um, we didn't get what we thought we were going to get. We're going to start over. Let's start on the rebuilding aspect. Yeah. And then all of a sudden with ice cube reaching out to the uh white house and then 50 cent reaching out to the white house and now more people are reaching out to the white house and finally none of the conservative movement the uh, the conscious conservative movement is getting the credit that they should but at the same time the ideas are there so that's good enough what what is this con- conscious conservative movement uh so the conscious conservative movement is actually it's not my movement uh okay. i'm a me- i'm a member of the network um it's felicia killings uh it- it's her network and she we all follow sonny johnson on uh sirius xm patriot who is very much the pro black conservative movement like thought leader at this point Um, very much in the likings of uh, Wayne Dupree and 
Jeff on the right and Ma, uh, Maj Torre and uh, Charisse Lane and Olivia Rondo. They're uh, pretty much the entire uh, panel that you that was at the Solutionary Summit in Atlanta earlier this year. Um, but it, it's and they're not all. I don't believe they're all part of the the network itself, but they all play a role and not necessarily active in the movement as a member, but uh, they're very much thought leaders in the movement. And it's basically a pro-black uh, admission that you don't you can discuss race without pandering. You can discuss it and have solutions. Um it's not a faux pas to be able to mention it. It's a faux pas to, I, I should say, uh, to pander to it. Okay. So, so those would be like the um, mentioning black unemployment numbers and giving the credit to the president, which he rightly deserves credit for it because it was his policies that helped. But at the same time, you also have to give credit to the black men and women that actually went out and shot for those jobs because for decades, the narrative that all we're asking for is handouts has been going around. So, um, which is contradictory to what it means to be conservative. A conservative is not asking for handouts. They're asking for broadly speaking opportunities or a place at the table. Maybe we could say exactly. And, there's there's two different there's two different methods to conservatism um, in the black community. There's the what we call the Malcolm X. There's the what I would say the Martin Luther King uh, Jr. approach, which is we want a seat at the table. And there's the Malcolm X, the we'll build our own damn table. Just get the hell out of our way. Okay. Yeah. And I'm more of a you can give me a seat at the table because you recognize what I have what I have to bring to the table or I can build my own damn table just get the hell out of my way just don't don't stand in my way and you're you're speaking specifically of the government right yes. or are you speaking of all white uh, people or are you speaking specifically not, of, of government uh, the Republican party specifically and government okay. like I I'll never tell I'll never tell somebody how to vote that that's that's not my thing. Uh, that's not my lane. My lane is, uh, like many others in this movement, is to make conservatives better. We need to be better conservatives. Better conservatives can market their ideas to normal other people who aren't necessarily, who are naturally conservative, but don't necessarily rock the label of putting an R in front of their name. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I could care less whether you have a D in front of your name or an R in front of your name. Honestly, I think the labels mean very little because a Democrat in Texas is not the same as a Democrat in New York City or in California. And the same goes for a Republican. A California Republican or a New York Republican is not the same as a, as a deep Texas Republican. So... It sounds like you're talking about values. So could you explain to somebody who doesn't really understand conservatives, what are the basic fundamental conservative values So makes a conservative? So it, it basically comes in a hierarchy. You have God, um, you have your God, you have family, 
um, then you have your country, and then and encompassing in that you spread your circle out. So there's this thing called voluntary agency. It's just because you're conservative doesn't mean you have to stick to this greedy, money-grubbing, I'm going to get everything I can and hoard it to myself and screw everyone around me. You can very much be an agent of your community and help your brother, be your brother's keeper, voluntarily, not through force of government. It's the, the idea that charity is moral and righteous, but forcing your idea of charity onto another is neither moral nor righteous. Hmm. Mm-hmm. It's the idea of you should not ask for government to do anything for you that would be illegal for you to do yourself. Hmm. So I cannot consciously ask for government to redistribute your wealth to me because it would be illegal and immoral for me to walk into your house and redistribute your wealth to me myself. What about violence, though? Uh, like the monopoly on violence. Don't you want the government to have that? You, you'd rather the government... No. Definitely not. <laughs> okay, Definitely so, not. so, so in terms of law enforcement and stuff like that... So when it comes to law enforcement, there's a way to police and be as do as little policing as physically possible. So what I mean is you make laws solely to deal with the interact the negative interactions between to punish and prevent negative interactions between one human being and another. So a victimless crime like possession of marijuana harms nobody. It shouldn't be a crime. Uh, smoking weed, drinking, stuff like that. Moral prohibitions should not be a thing because they don't affect the broader society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you may not like them. Um, yeah, it may be distasteful and you may see it as degrading society. But that's the issue of legislating your morality on, on another person. And just as I would not do it to the left, like personally, I'm not gay, uh, but I would not force my ideas of what is a proper couple onto a gay couple. That's wrong. So it's a difference between having your own individual morality and then there's the morality of what government should be involved in. Mm -hmm. So there's the legality of just because the Bible says that gay marriage is is wrong and homosexuality is wrong doesn't mean government should have a hand in it in any way or another. It but the Bible be, says that theft is wrong and murder is wrong. Exactly. Theft and wrong and murder is wrong because of its perpetration on the right. It's a violation of the rights of the, the other person. Because you're taking from another person, you're taking life from another person, you are harming somebody else. So it's punishment and prohibition on the harm of another person. Okay. And, and you're fine with I, the state having control over the punishment of people who commit uh, crimes against individuals' property, whether it's their uh, life or their livelihood. Uh, to a certain degree, yes. But I believe I believe that's a civil issue, not necessarily like property rights are a civil issue. Uh, I can take you to court. I can deal with you that way. When it comes to bur- burglary and stuff like that, well, to be completely honest, you'd have to survive breaking into my house first. <laughs> <laughs> 
It seems to me that that this kind of policing will only work if the community enshrines certain values. Like if you are in a crime ridden area where there's a lot of degeneracy, there has to be a strong hand or you're just saying hands off and let let the these crime riddled let's say inner cities um or very poor neighborhoods to take any sort of uh racialization out of that but just really poor neighborhoods where people are so needy that they are perpetrating crime on others in order to you know get along or to exert their power or something like that so th- this brings to the the economics and educational factors of when you look at policing as a whole policing is not isolated from the whole of society is very much a symptom of policy and good policy gets you good policing bad policy gets you bad policing now granted yes there are very few actual bad cops but when you over police you put the police at an adversarial relationship with the community and the citizenry in which the community now does not trust their police and those police are constantly going to deal with more and more flack and resistance from that community. When you create that cycle, all of a sudden you increase the, uh, that you increase that given statistic of the amount of people who are going to react when police interact with you on a negative basis. They'll fight you, run from you, try to take your gun, try to shoot at you, whatever. Mm-hmm. But again, that's bad policy. If I'm stopping you for jaywalking, I'm hassling you for, for possession, I'm messing with you for smoking a joint, sitting on your porch, for again, or what we saw during the lockdowns, I'm pulling you out of your car for sitting in a church service, or I'm stopping you and frisking you because the governor says that because you look a certain way, you must be a, you must be a potential convict. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing. The Fourth Amendment applies whether you're sitting in a church parking lot in your car and the government doesn't the governor doesn't think that you should Mm -hmm. because there's a pandemic going on and apparently sitting in your own car with closed windows in a parking lot is not properly social distance from everyone else and their cars with closed windows that I, I don't get the common sense there, but. Um, it's the same situation as Sonny Johnson has mentioned on her show is stop and frisk in New York City. And it doesn't matter whether the outcome ended up being good or not. Okay. If I, if I shoot you, you can't go and rob and kill a bunch of people. But did I really have cause to shoot you to begin with? Yeah. That's the issue. This isn't a minority port scenario where the government knows what's going to happen before it happens. So getting back to policy... You have policies that make arbitrary um, arbitrary actions illegal, and they force more and more and more contact with the citizenry. That doesn't necessarily need to happen when otherwise, if police did not have to enforce mundane arbitrary regulations, they could focus on community policing, community relations. They could know their community. They could be a part of it. They could be playing. You see, if you look on YouTube, you can find any number of videos of police playing basketball with kids in the park. Or that cop a while back that bought a woman groceries. Or caught a guy leaving a hospital and didn't have his kid in a car, his baby in a car seat. Uh, The mom was in the seat, uh, in the back seat holding the baby, if I remember correctly. So rather than give him a ticket, the cop bought them a new car seat. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. so they could ride around with their kids safely. That's that type of active policing that protect and serving your community, not just law enforcement. That's good. And most cops want to do stuff like that. I know plenty of cops. They're good. They're good, normal, everyday people that want to help a community. But bad policy creates an environment where you turn bad or good cops into bad cops by putting them in a situation where they're never allowed to react with to deal with the community on a positive basis. And it gives cover to real bad cops because it gives them undue authority that they shouldn't have otherwise. Hmm. And then in addition, there's a training aspect like in the military, you have this. You go to boot camp, but when you go to boot camp and you graduate, then you go to another training school. You go to SOI or MCT, uh, School of Infantry or Marine Infantry Training or Marine uh, MCT, Marine Com- Combat Training. Sorry, I brain farted for a moment. When you go and do those, then you go to your MOS school. So then you learn your job on top of that. So you're getting police you get to police academy and then you're back out on the beat and then you're oh. learning on the job as you go yeah but if you're in a place like detroit chicago la new york how much training do you get versus actually having to deal with the real thing before you've gotten comfortable in the position mm-hmm. how much training so in the in the military the method of training is important because it's keep it simple stupid it is a it is a very simple idea of training you to the point where you can react properly with very, very little information and not have to think about it. So your reaction time is fast, but you're reacting the right way. Okay, yeah. And it, there's the hands-on training of being able to go hand-to-hand with somebody if you need to, which hearing from plenty of my cop buddies, that's one of the things they're lacking in is hand-to-hand training. Oh, okay. So when you don't have hand-to-hand training, you have to escalate to that next level of force. And you have to escalate faster. When you lack the confidence in those other areas and you lack the training in those other areas, you end up having to escalate faster and faster to the point where you have ultimate authority. Hmm. Because the idea is in a normal world, everyone understands gun in the face. Or at least, I mean... It's supposed to be that way, but I mean, we, we don't live in that world anymore. Yeah. yeah. So, but in then, the see, conscious, other aspect of uh, there's another aspect of um, police training and or policy and stuff. The way budgeting works. When I heard from plenty of friends and police departments, when budgets get cut, the most expensive form of training is the first to go. So, which that's would be what kind of training? Range time, shoot, no shoot training, hand to hand training, stuff like that. That's that stuff that will make the difference between how you react in a situation, whether you react positively or negatively, given a a situation. And it gets you comfortable with being all sorts of situations. But when if that's constantly getting cut from the training, then you have people that just walked on the job. They're getting their training on the job, but they're not necessarily getting legit training, and the methods of training aren't necessarily there, and then the budget for future training isn't there. So defunding the police isn't necessarily the answer. Funding the police is the answer. Yeah. And funding them properly and budgeting properly, training properly. 
There's something that you said last week when I botched the recording, so we're having a second discussion, about the way in which uh, the what what you called the conscious conservative movement or the pro-black conservative movement, the way the the path that you folks want to take in order to gain black wealth and to strengthen the black community is it's in stark contrast to what the progressives or the left is offering, which is more aid. Um, I, I was wondering if you could talk more about that and how you see that the free market would yeah. be the answer to the black uh, community uh, situation or desires. So one of the key factors is competing ideology. Strict adherence to a single ideology, one way or another, um, in government hands, where government always seeks more power. That's the one thing. Power, you know, power is absolute. <laughs> it's one of those things. Uh, so with power always seeking more power and always seeking to grow, the last thing you want is the government to to have ultimate power. You want to leave as many decisions and as much power at the local government is physically possible. And the capitalist system works well with works within that framework of leaving the utmost decision making at the individual level. And by doing that, all everything needs to be tailored to that level. Uh, where the decision making the decision making of the individual will allow them to rise or fall as fast as they want to. Mm-hmm. And when, when we talk statistics and stuff, we, we take people as stagnants, as uh, constants rather than variables, creating more and more variables by making choices, millions of choices mm-hmm. in instance. Um, and when you look at the black community, we've had ever since the 1930s, I mean, we literally went from slavery had a few years where it's like, oh, yay, we can kind of try and get back on our feet. Bam, Jim Crow laws. And then you go to 1930s where the middle class was built through uh, the New Deal and stuff like that. And then, But we were shut out from a large majority of it. So we got the welfare, but we didn't get everything else that allowed mm-hmm. us to build. But yet Such as still- education, Pell Grants, stuff like that? Yeah, that type of – those type of – um, education, things like that, and then separate but equal doctrine. But that that sort of stuff didn't really hurt us when we were building our own. It didn't hurt us as much as it was intended to hmm. when we started to build our own communities like Black Wall Street in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, yeah. and things of that sort. Then all those started to get burnt down and stuff, and we ended up having to redo this cycle after cycle after cycle. Um, and my my whole thing is black wealth, the creation of wealth, is being talked about on one side of the aisle. Redistribution of wealth is being talked about on the other side of the aisle. Now, what's fascinating is the establishment on both sides of the aisle are talking about redistribution of wealth. It's just who are they redistributing it to? Mm-hmm. You have the cronies on one side of the aisle on the right that we're trying to get rid of that constantly want to make sure that corporations get bailouts and stuff like that. And you get the establishment on the left wants to constantly make sure that they give just enough to black people in the inner city that we can buy a pack of cigarettes and a, uh, and a six pack of beer and stay exactly where we hmm. are. 
Okay. And the issue is both parties have different cores. And it goes back to the slang term that Republicans are the party of the rich. Well, at the core principles of the, the Republican Party, if you're the party of the rich, then in order to replenish your base and continue to grow your constituency, you have to create the opportunity for people to get rich. However, in contrast, you look at the Democrats at their core principles. If you're the party of the poor and you have to constantly replenish your base and replenish your your constituency, you kind of have to have people that are poor. Hmm. So you can you can't let people get so successful that they no longer need you. Yeah, and I'm not saying that it it happens. Yeah. I'm not saying that it happens purposefully. I'm saying the best of intentions often end up with the worst possible results. It's just the idea that if you're con- if you're redistributing wealth rather than giving a man the ability to make his own wealth, mm-hmm. then he's going to have to keep coming back to you to get that money rather than creating his own. Now, uh, again, I-, I won't tell anyone how to vote. That's not a thing. Um, my thing is trying to get conservatives to be better conservatives, and we're working on that. We're working There's... on that. There's a new rise in the conser- in the conservative movement. As a matter of fact, there's a tweet that went out from uh, a candidate this election, Anna, Pol- uh, Anna Paulina Luna, had tweeted this from uh, Cawthorn from North, Co- uh, North Carolina, a uh, quote of his, let us rise as a new Republican Party, a party that offers real solutions and attacks ideas rather than individuals, a party that meets voters where they are instead of belittling them for what they care about, offers a better way. There's something else that you said that stuck with me about the way that Trump might be showing a new path to the Republican Party uh, by showing in practice that empowering certain groups that the Republican Party has traditionally uh, looked over, overlooked, or ignored, such as the black population, that that Trump targeting these groups, showing how potent they are, how powerful they are, might be uh, a way for the Republican Party to actually kind of change and be more of a party of the people uh, rather than than an elite. Very, very much, as far as Trump is concerned, Yes, he's a he's a rich playboy, reality TV show businessman. But as far as businessmen go, he doesn't act as much like a businessman. Uh, or as far as rich billionaires go, he doesn't seem to act as much like a rich billionaire as most would. Hmm. Like he he seems to gravitate more towards made men, um, rather than. Uh, what do you mean by that? I mean the the men that they carve their they carve their future they carve their success like he athletes and stuff like that that they they literally made yeah they pull themselves up by their bootstraps for for uh, another word they they got they built everything with their hands yeah. um they built their their lifestyles now he is very much different from most of the the GOP um, the GOP is. Very stuck in that, I hate to say, um, old school mentality that comes from the Lily White movement back in the 1890s. Um, the Lily White Republican movement that pushed black people out of the party. 
Because yeah. the Republicans at the time of slavery, they're the ones who kind of championed the end of slavery. But then a turn happened where they became kind of a white party. Yeah. And it was that's when that's when the majority of black voters started to go Democrat was a Republicans pushed us out of the party and Democrats. Basically, they didn't invite us in, but you had this you had this choice that had to happen in the black community and you had people that were shopping around for ideas, which is where we are right now, honestly. You have people shopping around for ideas of what we thought would make us successful, regardless of which party, because when you have one party that wants nothing to do with you and they're completely apathetic towards you, and the other one that actively despises you and just created a whole slew of laws to stand in your way, you end up having to choose an ideology that you you see is going to be successful for your people in that and, condition. Yeah. And, yeah, and in doing that at the time, it was the um, it was the the Democrats that they went towards because they were pushing Marxism, and those at the time, the black Marxists of the era, believed that that would be the path towards a better future that would help black people out of poverty and. They you know what at the time um, it wasn't full blown uh, Hitler esque <laughs> uh, Marxism or Stalin esque Mar mm. Marxism. It was uh, it was very much an American Marxism, but it hmm. it it still was not good. But we would have had a better go at it. Okay. Um, but as, by means as, of redistribution uh, or uh, by means of gaining some sort of wealth through taxation or through a government filtration yeah, system, we would have been we would have been on even keel with everyone else that received the same thing okay, for yeah. lack of terms. But because we were shut out of those, that didn't happen. But then you have this evolution over time with the GOP, where yes, the as the Marxists steadily started to take over the Republican Party, and that that black movement. Are steadily start to take over the Democratic Party and that black movement within the Democratic Party, that's why you saw so many civil rights leaders immediately following civil rights primary out and take over positions and you have your Congressional Black Caucus. Mm -hmm. Which is uh, and, Democrat. And, yeah. yeah. And then within the Republican uh, within the Republican Party you didn't see you didn't see a movement like that. And, and as time had moved on, you you can see the populist movements in both parties. Um, <laughs> Barack Obama was very much the, the most recent populist movement. Uh, JFK was a populist, um, was a populist movement. Uh, Ronald Reagan was a populist movement. And now Donald Trump is a populist movement on the right. <laughs> and it is very much... Uh, due to the dissatisfaction with both parties' establishment. Mm -hmm. That idea that it seems like no matter who you elect, nothing seems to change. And then within the Republican Party, we're trying to get rid of all the old school thinkers that say things like, I'm black, or I'm not black, I'm American, rather than okay. say, I'm black and I'm American, and the two are not directly oppositional to each other nor are they directly oppositional to conservatism okay so that that's the that's the difference is the um the being able to approach people where they are being able to see the race of a person 
not say that you're colorblind and you don't see race and you don't see color because that's stupid. But be able to see it and it just not matter towards the character and value of the individual. Yeah, yeah. That's it, is be able to look at us as individuals and not as um, not as anathema of a, of a particular group. So the pro-black movement that you're talking about that's conservative, it's based on conservative values, but it has a community, it has a sense of community, that, that pro-black speaks to a community. What, what is the, uh, could, you, could you speak more on that and unpack that? Because well, I see, I, I saw recently last week, there was a pro-black movement, but it was from the left, and it yep. was uh, basically begging for money, that white people should basically support black people. And I have no problem with that, but I just don't want all that I don't want all that mindset attached to that. I, I want to have yeah. transactions with different communities that are beneficial to both parties. I'm not going to look on pity on you and then uh, support you that way. I want to do it man-to-man kind of thing. So, so can you expand on what it means to be pro-black and, and conservative? So pro-black and con- conservative is just – I mean it's all the tenets of conservatism. You know, the difference is I'm, I'm not going to deny my heritage, my history, and my culture okay. to be conservative because throughout – uh, the years you had the, the that war on hip hop, the war on drugs, and the ninety the ninety four crime bill, yeah. um, you had that type of stuff. It was directly where crack was demonized more than cocaine, despite the fact that they're the same. Yeah. So you have a demonization of the type of drug used, and it directly affects only a small portion of society. So how can you say that you're not directly targeting that portion of society? Yeah. I mean, if yeah. they had demonized it all exactly the same, then we wouldn't have that issue or the locking people up for 20 years for possession of marijuana hmm. and smoking marijuana. Like who, who did you really hurt for that? Honestly, but the, the pro black movements very much just an acknowledgement of our, our history, our culture and everything that makes that we've built here in America, because I'll be honest. I'm not African American. I'm not from Africa. The honestly, my my heritage goes back way, way far before it gets to Africa. I mean, way far before it gets to Africa. So I, I can't say I'm African American, but I, I'm American black. Hmm. I'm black and I'm American. It, hmm. It's so it's, but the. It's the acknowledgement of who we are. And yeah. our community is very much dear to us. If you notice, everyone that moves out, every black person moves out of the community into a nice suburban neighborhood still reps their community. Hmm. They still talk about it. It still holds a dear place in our heart, despite the fact that you may have gone through hell living in that community. Mm-hmm. And the reason some of these, uh, you hear some of these statistics, while we're so much more affected by crime and uh, drug use and stuff like that. It's partially because we're so attached to our community. We don't leave it. Hmm. We don't leave it. We don't like to move. We want to stay in our community. We want to build it up and create and create a better future. We want to build up our community and still be able to live in that community, not have it built up for us. And then we get gentrified out of it later. Mm-hmm. It- there's a movement called anti-racism that seems to be uh, being passed around by 
typically by white liberals, well-off white liberals of a, of a certain status. And it's become yeah. a kind of a status thing. And I, I, I witnessed anti-racism exert a very powerful force over my college and had a very negative effect. And there were certain ideas inside of that that were trying to be good to the black community by stressing the pain, stressing the slavery, making slavery central central to America, uh, stressing all of the negative aspects of what it is to be black. How do you picture America at large really healthily absorbing the 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 plight of the African American community or the Black community, while still not dipping into pity, still not uh, allowing for these kind of grifting kind of mechanisms to be in place. Like, how do we look at the negative history and make good on that? Or what should we be stressing when we look at the Black experience? Well, the the one thing I can say that's come positive from this is I don't like revisionist history, um, and Thanks to some of the issues that have become present, like uh, Black Lives Matter and all the protests and stuff over the past, uh, I'll say, 12 years. Um, there's been this awakening, uh, this conscious awakening where people seek out black history and people are learning more and stuff. And I, I think largely this disconnect is due to the fact that most people don't know black history. When you relegate four hundred and some uh, four hundred fifty years of history to a single month in school, how can you possibly expect people to come away with a good grasp of it? I mean, you literally you you go back and you go, all right, slaves were brought here. Then there was a, in a month you go from slaves were brought here. There was a civil war. There was Jim Crow laws in the sixties. Bam, there was a civil rights movement. You run over. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., um, Malcolm X, Rosa Parks, mm -hmm. uh, Elijah Cunningham, and then you go to the 94 crime bill, if you even get there, and that's it. And you start talking LeBron and Oprah Winfrey. Oh, okay. So Black you're, success, you're, basically, is the American yeah. dream fulfilled kind of thing. Yeah. It's like, oh, yay, the flowers that cracked through the concrete. They were successful, so it's all over now. Hmm. Mm -hmm. But that's that's not the case. It, to largely throughout um, uh, most of these uh, major cities, these black communities have been run by a single party for damn near a hundred years. For a lot of them. yeah, and while a hundred years ago. Is when all those policies, the gentrification, the redlining, all that stuff was enacted in law and enforced. The stance on race of the Democratic Party have changed, but their ideals on governance have not changed. Just like the stance on race over the years of Republicans may have changed, but the ideas on governance, the core principles haven't changed. Mm-hmm. Free market capitalism, strength through uh, strength through peace, uh, peace through strength, um, mm -hmm. things like that. A strong moral character. But what got lost along the way is the the right moved into this area of trying to legislate morality, and in mm -hmm. that legislating morality, you ended up trying to go this route of we can't talk about black people, we can't discuss race, ignore it like it doesn't exist. 
Okay. And by reversing that, putting black history, Native American history, Hispanic history, all of it that happened in America in history where it was relevant and getting rid of the months to teach okay. LGBTQ black history, Hispanic history, get rid of all the months and just combine it all together. You learn about what was relevant, when it was relevant in time, as it happened. Don't die. Don't dissect and put it off on a shelf for February. Okay. What makes us, if, if we are all different and we're all immersed and learning as we should about the different paths that we all got here, what makes us American? What unifies us? Why why even stay together if we've all gone through so many different terrible things? You know what it is? It's that it's that idea of self determination. America was very much built on a whole bunch of rejects from around the world <laughs> that got sick of being told what to do and told how to live, and it was a world of monarchies at the time. You didn't have a say, and the House of Lords was a house of aristocrats. Is very much similar to our Senate today because they're not elected how they should be, but uh, or how they originally were. But it, it's very much a an aristocratic body that basically decides what's good for you. That's not how America was built. It was built the exact opposite, where the federal government is supposed to have, while it has the most impactful job for national security and things of that sort. It was supposed to have a very low impact on the daily life of the individual. And the power was supposed to get stronger as you get closer to the individual, where the individual has the most say. Okay. That appealed to people because the idea of a free market where you could start with nothing and build yourself into a billionaire, that appealed to people worldwide. People were here, you know what, you can come here, you can build a better future, you can get land and build up. And you can create an empire within an empire sort of attitude. Yeah. And the patriotism, the story itself was very, was unique. Um, at the time when the country was founded, we were founded on modern liberalism, as it was termed at the time. It was very much a new idea of God-given, unalienable rights that the, the government did not bestow on you, and nor could it take it away. Without, I mean, you murdering somebody or something of that sort. And even that evolved over time. So uh, it was very much this this uh, emerald city on a hill uh, sort of mentality that, that led people to come here. Now, I mean, obviously, that's not the story of slaves that yeah, were exactly. brought here. And that's not the story of, say, the Chinese that came here. Um, as indentured servants to work on the railroads or the Irish for the same reason. But um, for those that came willingly, you saw something unique in this country. There was something very different about being in a country that was steadily becoming a world power, but at the same time had none of the features of the rest of the world Hmm. that were... Monarchies are authoritarian. They're they're dictatorships with a crown, with jewelry attached to it. So, and we were very much a different country, and that that inspired people because when you are the sole arbiter of your fate, that that that's something inspiring. However, as things start to go along, that and I mean, 
well, let's skip ahead to post-slavery, Reconstruction era. The Industrial Revolution here was unlike anywhere else in the world. We built and we created and we did things that people thought were completely impossible. And even though we were not all equal at the time under law, there was still this attitude of being able to build and being able to create things. And we were all unified in that Amer that pursuit of the American dream was what unified us. And our universality under the law um, as late as the 60s. Uh, that was what really solidified it during the 60 uh, post 60s civil rights movement. Universality of the law was what what initially was supposed to uh, bring us all together. Mm -hmm. It was the idea you could count on the law to be impartial and it it didn't matter who you were at the time. Now, the I mean, we know the reality that 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 doesn't always work out the way it's it's supposed to. We have fantastic principles that people believe in and want to believe in and that's what honestly brings so many different cultures and backgrounds from all over the world together to strive for a better futures the principles that we aspire to despite that we haven't always lived up to them mm -hmm. but the the key factor is that we in such a short history is 245 years coming soon that we have always strived in that direction, and we've taken great pains to do so. How do you sell that dream, that attitude to a community that has been mired in poverty and has been you know, over-policed? Like, how do you how do you seed that and sell that? I'm sorry to, to ask it in this way, but to the black community that's suffering right now, or do you see that that's the viable path? Because it seems like they're being sold another path where through this reparations model, they can achieve the same thing uh, under the government. So is, is, that, is that even a contention within uh, the black conservative movement? Are you guys uh, trying to sell yourselves to unify yeah. and strengthen your numbers? And that, that's, that's very much it. It's, in order to in order to, to go to this point, you, you have to we recognize the successes that the black community has had even when the country was legally, actively, physically enforcing laws against us solely because of the color of our skin. Then it was it wasn't something that was baked into the system um, because it was never addressed or because people ignore the, the outcomes because it's an uncomfortable conversation similar to what it is now. It was, it was purposeful. But now you come to look at what we accomplished. We built, a, we built our own Negro League that rivaled the major leagues. We, and when we competed in the major leagues, we not only competed, we did better than the, the Nate. We went to the Berlin Olympics and we shattered records. We proved the world what we could do. <laughs> we went to war after war after war and we fought and we died, even though that we were still not equal in our own country. <laughs> we fought and we created a better future. And the fact is, on the ground, the interaction between everyday people is where minds are changed. It's not in the courtroom. It's not in Congress where... They, they argue about how to benefit each other the, the best. It's, it's down here on the ground. It's when I served, I stand next to a guy that 
factually did not like me and it was because of the color of my skin but by leaving and coming home we were equals we love each other i would take a bullet for him you take a bullet for me color didn't matter mm-hmm. i i met guys in the in the marine corps that were actively racist and i mean like legit uh neo-nazi style racist join join the marine corps and don't see color any well they see color but the only color that matters to them is green it's whether or not you served and other than that they don't care your your skin tone doesn't matter a damn thing to them it's you served or you didn't you're a civilian or you're you're a marine and when i look at when i look at the black community the one thing that we are we we don't have to we don't have to deny who we are to be american we very much bleed red white and blue we're just as patriotic as anyone else we can approach the black community with the economics that allow for us to create generational wealth and bring ourselves up and build an empire within an empire. Mm-hmm. We, we can come at the black community with better opportunities for education. And when you can't get school choice, the community can create its own school, to aug- its own educational programs to augment the school that already exists. If the government is not going to give you the schooling you want for your child – Get together as a community and provide better. Get those intellectuals, those people who may have, like, I have a love of history and law, and I'm, I'm weird like that. I read law for fun because uh, I have no life. <laughs> <laughs> you, have, you have lives, though. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, get those people that have interests, that have education, that have something to pass down to the next generation and get them together. You you get them together, you get them to pass down that information, and you can continue to do it. And often it comes from the most unlikely places. I tell you, uh, Sonny Johnson mentions it all the time, and it's my experience as well. People that go to prison, well, in prison you don't got a whole lot of shit to do but read. And read a lot they do, especially mm-hmm. law and history. Mm-hmm. So... You can you can learn stuff from the most unlikely places. Uh, one of the biggest fallacies we're operating under is that education is solely relegated to the classroom. Instruction is only one mode of education. The greatest mode of education is acquiring it for yourself. Like, I went to college and I got what I got in the classroom and that's all well and it was fun and had some good discussions, had many more bad discussions, but I... I love to read, so I read like a book every, say, two to five days. Um, I, I had to cut back on reading because I was getting absorbed and starting to lose touch with reality. Yeah, it happens. But, yeah, and but it, that's the education creates better opportunity. When you have a lack of education from the get-go, you have a lack of opportunity for better jobs. When you have a lack of opportunity for better jobs, you take opportunity where it presents itself, and that leads to criminality. Criminality leads to eventually death or jail time. If you get lucky and go to jail instead of dying, you you get out of jail and you go right back in the same position where if you can't get a job, you go right back into criminality. Yeah. It leads you right back, and it's a perpetuating cycle of recidivism. Mm-hmm. And does, and that that's regardless of the fact that you may have gone to jail for something completely mundane. Mm-hmm. It's and our prisons are not about rehabilitation; they're more so about punishment. 
So that that should be addressed as well. As, as a black community, you you reach people where they are. So rather than the Republican Party trash hip hop music and try to blame it for all the ills of society, understand that hip hop music is largely capitalistic. It's largely capitalistic. You never hear anybody rapping about how they'd love to wait in a freaking breadline. You'll never hear Cardi B talking about how she wants to wait in a breadline bread or wants to be at a soup kitchen waiting for Comrade to give her a loaf of bread. It's not going to happen. But you will hear Big House, Five Cars, and Live Large. You will hear Black Car, Black Card, All Black Everything. You, you'll hear that shit. And you'll hear you'll hear songs that are uplifting and drive you to succeed, even though your life may suck. You hear songs that tell a story about how somebody went from rags to riches. That's very much capitalism. It is very much conservatism. Telling a story about how someone went from rags to riches is spectacular. Mm-hmm. There, there's and, a uh, normally the first album of of every rapper, but that's not what you hear on mainstream. On mainstream radio play, you hear the same 40 songs over and over and over again. It's usually sex, drugs, and sex and drugs, and more sex and drugs. And it's not it's not because that's what appeals to black people, because we, we flat out cannot buy the amount of digital plays and downloads and albums that come out that get bought. We're, we're not even a majority buyer. Mm-hmm. So the the perception of our culture is largely filtered through um, the media, which is responsible for most of the misconceptions we as society have for each other. Well, that was my next question, because over the last um, four or five months since uh, the George, uh, George Floyd incident, a lot has happened in the name of the black community, and a lot is being... Uh, Foisted a lot of political activities happening throughout many institutions in the name of the black community. And that's causing some agitation because the ideas that are being used behind that are very communist in origin, yep. very postmodern. And if you actually look at the ideas, it's a political ideology that's using your heritage to forward yep. its own its own means. So within your group, within all these podcasters and all these speakers, what is the attitude towards uh, the changes that are happening right now? And this opportunity that could present itself that is being taken up by a certain political faction that is not conservative. Honestly, I'm going to say thank you, Black Lives Matter. If you hadn't gone, uh, and I mean the national organization, if you haven't hadn't gone absolutely bonkers, the discussions that we we're having in a Republican Party probably wouldn't be happening. If race wasn't a twenty four seven topic for the last friggin' I'd say twelve years, it wouldn't be happening right now. And it's because it's been forced, because conservatives are naturally apathetic. Yeah. Um, but the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, the local orig- the the founding movements, the local grassroots movements started out and they were taken over by heads that are not there they don't even hold the same message as the original movements and it happened so damn quickly most people have never heard of shale sons and um darren sales uh, uh rest in peace but you 
you have those guys that were trying to make change and they're trying to change in their local community and they had very much a a localized message but as that got took taken over and co-opted it's very similar to if you read manning johnson's uh farewell message to america um from the 1930s is very much exactly i i swear when you read it you're going to be like holy hell this is happening right now it is that's manning johnson's farewell to america yeah his farewell message it wasn't actually intended to be a farewell message it was just the last major speech he did before dying. And he okay. was a a communist that realized that the black community was being used to further communism without it actually helping us. We were being used as cannon fodder. Okay, and yeah. That, that is very much what's happening right now is if you look at the Black Lives Matter, it started out, you saw a lot of black people in the streets protesting, marching, and during the daytime, now, that's the difference. When they say peaceful protest, the majority of the protests take place during daytime. So, yes, the majority of the protests are peaceful. And that is where you see the majority of black people. When the sun goes down at night and the freaks come out at night, it, that's when the violence happens. That's when the protests become riots. That's when they burn down police stations and attack City Hall and the courthouse and they loot and stuff like that. So that pretty much and that is the people that show up to these these late night uh, activities and riot and loot and stuff. They're very much the exact same kids that used to show up for Antifa. Antifa has very much rebranded itself as Black Lives Matter at this point. You see the arrest of how many of people getting arrested in all these major cities, these black quote-unquote Black Lives Matter protesters, and it's a bunch of suburban white kids with blue hair and um, pimples all over their face. It just, it, it's, you, you see like one black person in a whole list of 50 photos of suburban white kids that are angry at mommy and daddy and went to UC Berkeley and decided to take out their anger on the world. And that that is perfectly uh, mirrored in the... Uh, that's perfectly mirrored in the uh, in the corporate setting. Uh, I, I, they, they hire these diversity and equity people who are usually black and probably usually black women. But yeah. the people who are benefiting from that and the people who are championing that are the the, the fathers and the mothers of those Antifa kids that are that are they're both co opting black yeah. lives. They're both co opting oh, yeah. the cultural moment. But you yeah. say you said something very yeah. interesting that cool. the conservative cool. black movement is also co opting that. It's forcing a conversation and how is that beneficial not only to the black community, but to America to have a strong black community in the conservative movement? Well the dissatisfaction within the Democratic Party right now, because equally just the same way the the Republican Party's in a split, there we're dealing with issues right now where you have a populist conservative movement. They want to embrace black people. They want to embrace Hispanic people, and have no clue why the hell the GOP has waited so long to do this. And because they're new at it, they make mistakes, like follow Candace Owens and Brandon Tatum and their half of a movement that they got going on, which is more about leaving Democrats than it is about being conservative. Yeah. Yeah. It's more about don't be with those guys and those guys are bad, not, hey, come look at us. This is what how we're better 
This is what yeah. we can build on. This is how we can make you successful. So it's a it's half a movement. But when you look yeah. at um, within the Republican Party right now, you have that conventional GOP thinking, and then you have the Black Conservative movement. We're we're only one section of this populist movement, but mm-hmm. we are very much on. I'd say Brett Bart news sort of thinkers like uh, David Webb, Andrew Wilkow. Um, those are your um, populist uh, conservatives. They are very much stick to the stick to the Constitution, stick to the laws, stop with the cronyism, stop with trying to bail out your buddies. Stop with the warmongering overseas. Stop getting in everybody's business. Stop trying to raise taxes and keep regulating people's behavior. Just stop. Just let us do our own thing. We can figure stuff out on our own. You don't have to be there to pat us on the butt and tell us you're special. Hmm. <laughs> so, and I mean literally pat us on the butt and tell us you're special, not tell us our, we're special. Because if you look at what the the Lincoln Project, we were just talking about this this week on Twitter. If you look at what the Lincoln Project is, it is the thought leaders in the GOP for decades leaving the GOP and going, oh my God, I can't believe I was a part of of the GOP. We've only been running this forever. Those guys right there, all those those racist voters in the GOP, I can't believe all these people are racist. I'm like... Wait a minute. You refused to outreach to black people. You actively called us slaves on a plantation. These are your ideas. You actively belittled us. You agreed with Joe Biden when you said that we were super predators and stuff like that. You all voted for the 94 crime bill. You're the same cronies that bail out corporations and shit on the black community anytime you get a chance to do so. And now you're saying that the average voter that we stand next to on a regular basis is the racist? Hmm. It's insane, the gall that they have. And that's what we're dealing with right now is uh, it's a divide. You have that Lincoln project. And believe me when I say that all the people that would that want to be in the Lincoln project haven't joined and put on the uh, pin on their lapel. There are very much people of a like mind that have not joined the organization. Okay. And um, within this populist movement and uh, within the conservative black movement, uh, the, I want to say the, uh, yeah, I mean, this has been going on for over a decade now. Yeah. People like Sonny Johnson been at this for, for over a decade. Um, this pro black conservatism where you, you don't have to be ashamed of who you are and you can own your culture. Um, this has been around for a while. The issue that really made it come to a head was, the dissatisfaction and all the anger boiling over on the left has started to seep over. You have black men largely being ignored by both parties through past elections. You have Democrats that market towards black women, and you have Republicans that just, they marketed against black men forever. Okay. So now you have a difference where Trump has welcomed people into the administration that are actually trying to market towards black men. Now they've screwed up along the way, as I've said, and they, now they're finally starting to get it 
right in the 11th hour, but I, I, I guess I'll take a win where I can get it. <laughs> um, but, that, I mean, that's very much what we have going on right now is a uh, a sort of a revolution within a revolution. The the yeah. The populist left is trying to take over their party and populist right is trying to take over our party. And really all we want is conservatism to be equally applied to everybody. Okay. No exceptions, no... Um, you're rich, so you get a special exception, or you're poor, so you get a special exception. Just apply conservatism equally. Treat everyone as equally. See us all as individuals, and stop doing one-off plans and laws at the federal level and expecting them to fix the thousands of localities and how the issues affect them at a local level. That's just not reality. So, so I... We've been talking about race, and I guess we've touched on racism, past and present racism. It doesn't seem like you are resentful toward the treatment of yourself or of your people. How do I, we deal with race without resentment? And is resentment at all useful for you in, in your conception of what's going on and has gone on? I'll be honest. I, I've gotten racism from black people, white people, Asian people. Uh, I see it as... Uh, there's an ignorant person in every bunch, and it doesn't take much for them to show themselves. I've had more positive contact with people than I have negative, despite the fact that the negative has been uh, pretty impact, uh, much more impactful when it happens. Um, uh, I'm biracial. Uh, dad's white. Mom is black. Both served in the Air Force together, and they were together at a time when it still was not okay to be so. So... And I grew up in Dayton, Ohio, where there's very much animosity uh, between the black community and the white community there. And it largely has to do with a lot of misunderstandings. Hmm. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of misunderstandings. A, this idea hmm. of, I think you hate me, so I hate you, and vice yeah. versa. And then and it just keeps on going from, and going. Yeah, it's like an endless cycle. And what it was is it was, it was the, the shit I dealt with was, it's... It's mostly kids repeating the stuff they hear their, their parents say. So uh, as much as at the time it was more impactful, I learned how to fight real quick. But okay. when I look at the world, I don't see everyone as being hateful. I see there being two different kinds of uh, situations. You have passive ignorance, which are people that don't know about other cultures, don't understand and because that, they talk about us in a negative manner. They make mistakes because they generally lack the understanding. They don't have the experience. They got all their information about us from the, the I guess we don't have the 7 o'clock news anymore, but from the news and from the yeah. media itself, who the media only shows us as the lowest 1% or the top 1%. And ignores the entire spectrum of middle class black people through, throughout. And they do the same thing to conservatives and liberals. You see the, the top 1% of conservatives got to be Gordon Gecko or Bertie Madoff. And the bottom 1% got to be Larry the Cable Guy or Joe Dirt. Yeah. So um, they, the media very much deals in raw stereotypes and... Because of how much they push those stereotypes, we have a very skewed uh, 
and unless you come into contact with people different than uh, differently than you on such a regular basis that that doesn't impact your thinking. How does the idea of reparations work out within your intellectual community? Is that something that is argued or thought about, or um, then it's actually it's actually discussed quite a bit. Uh, I'm not a fan of cash payments uh, or creation of government programs or anything like that, where the government is again going to be regulating behavior and things like that. I'm on the train of the original 40 acres and a mule sort of mentality. Give us the land and watch what we build with it. Hmm. The government and the states have a monopoly on land. And if they divest from some of that land and they give up the 40 acres or whatever to um, African descendants of slavery, no more, no less, just African descendants of slavery. Because I'm not one of these... Everyone, everyone gets a cookie. Once you start offering <laughs> cookies, everyone wants a cookie. Well, yeah, that's the problem offering, with it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you start offering cookies. Everyone wants a cookie. And it's whoever offers the most cookies wins. And that that's pretty much how our, what our political system has turned into is yeah. I got a constituency and I'm going to offer them cookies and you got a constituency and you're going to offer them cookies. I'm saying the government has a monopoly over something it shouldn't have a monopoly over, divest from that land, give it up to uh, African descendants of slavery, those people that lived through, that dealt with Tulsa, Oklahoma, and all the different black Wall Streets getting burnt down and literally had wealth taken away from them. If you're going to do reparations, do the 40 acres, watch us build an empire with us. Watch us build a Wakanda with uh, 40 acres. Mm-hmm. And just step back and watch us do what we do. And once you have that land, land is tangible and it holds a legitimate value. Do whatever you want with it. You want to mine oil? You want to frack? You want to mine minerals with it? Hey, do do what you want to do with your 40 acres. You want to farm and uh, create new crops or come up with a new crop that's resistant towards drought or something? Like in California, I'm sure they could use that. They're on fire every year. They could... They're in a constant drought. They could definitely use that. So watch what we build with it. But other than that, when it comes to cash payments and stuff like that, uh, I'm not a big fan of that. One, it's arbitrary. Uh, how do you come up with a number? Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, how do you come up with a number? You'd be spitballing in the wind. It's a uh, one person, 5,000 is enough. Another person, 50,000 is enough. Uh, another person, 500,000 is enough. When, when is it actually enough? And do you have to keep doing that generation after generation? Do you have to do that to every African descendant of slavery continuously until the day they died? Do we decide a point where we've caught up? Do we decide a point where it's been enough? Or do you just go one shot, 40 acres, the government is divested from its monopoly on land, hmm. build what you want out of it because land is a creator of generational wealth. Just like education and economic opportunity are. When you buy a house, that is that is a sect of generational wealth to pass down to your children. Congratulations for reaching the end of the podcast. If you enjoyed this product, consider donating to this channel via paypal.me slash Benjamin Boyce or joining me on Patreon. Also follow me on Twitter at Benjamin A. Boyce. Have a good night.